hppodcraft.com. Informs and inspires through magic and fun. They say foul things of old times still lurk in dark, forgotten corners of the world. And gates still gape to loose on certain nights, shapes pent in hell. Justin Jeffrey. I read of it first in the strange book of von Juntz, the German eccentric who lived so curiously and died in such grisly and mysterious fashion. It was my fortune to have access to his nameless cults in the original edition, the so-called Black Book, published in Dusseldorf in 1839, shortly before a hounding doom overtook the author. Collectors of rare literature were familiar with nameless cults, mainly through the cheap and faulty translation, which was pirated in London by Bridewall in 1845, and the carefully expurgated edition put out by the Golden Goblin Press of New York in 1909. But the volume I stumbled upon was one of the unexpurgated German copies, with heavy black leather covers and rusty iron hasps. I doubt if there are more than half a dozen such volumes in the entire world today, for the quantity issued was not great, and when the manner of the author's demise was bruited about, many possessors of the book burned their volumes in panic. I definitely burned my copy of Nameless Cults. How about you, Chris? Uh, I actually have the audiobook copy <gasps> that Betty White reads. Real? <laughs> wow, did you burn it? Probably. Oh, Chris. Speaking of audiobooks, what was that we just heard? <laughs> that was the opening paragraph of Robert E. Howard's The Black Stone, and we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I also burnt, um, I had a copy of Von Yuntz's Little Black Book. You know, like, before cell phones, that's where a guy would keep his names and numbers of the, the ladies that he yeah. wanted to go on dates with. Yeah, I had Von Yuntz's copy of his little black book which was also called nameless i mean almost cults but one letter was different oh in that yeah. word yeah really von Jens had a problem with women so i guess know. so i was glad to burn that one uh yeah, anyway who huh? was our who was our reader that was caleb hoffert so glad to have him back great job caleb uh, there were some words in that paragraph act like expurgated that uh that word is just a prick i wouldn't want to say that <laughs> Thank hey, you, thank you for saying. We got to keep it clean this week because we've got a sponsor. Yes, we do. I am very proud to say that this week's episode is sponsored by the book High Strange Horror, an anthology from Muzzleland Press who publish fine horror, weird, and literary genre fiction. For fans of The X-Files, Coast to Coast AM, Welcome to Night Vale, or for anyone who loves a good or bad conspiracy theory, High Strange Horror is an examination of our modern mythologies viewed through a horror lens. This collection features 17 different stories and two essays on our weird and wonderful world. The paperback and Kindle versions are available on Amazon right now. And it's not just any anthology, but a scary one. I've read this over and it's a solid book. I have a few favorites. Um, one of them is So You've Lost Your Edge, Now What? by Charles Martin and Will Winkie. I hope I pronounced that right. A story about a writer that goes through a midlife crisis. He sees this billboard that says, So You've Lost Your Edge, Now What? And then it's got a phone number on there. He calls the phone number and you know what happens next? No. Read the book. Uh, when I opened up the table of contents, the first title I saw was The Pirate Ghost of Hole 19. <laughs> <laughs> by Dr. Gaines. And I've already been entertained at that point. Yeah. I love pirates. I love ghosts. And I love doctors. And it, and it really paid off on the title. I thought it was funny and had a great sense of humor. Well, I was really creeped out by The Dead Weight by Tony Nicolino. A rich Wall Street guy is dying of terminal cancer and he starts hearing and seeing strange stuff. 
But is it real? Is it supernatural? <gasps> Read the book. Here's another one where the title grabbed me. Frosty Pyramid Treats by yeah. Jonathan Rahab. A pretty suspenseful little story about basically weaponized breakfast cereal. Yeah. <laughs> For real. It was, I, it was a good one. High Strange Horror. Do yourself a favor. Read this book. We are kicking off our month of Robert E. Howard stories. Finally, this has been a long time coming. Lovecraft and Howard did not begin their very interesting correspondence with each other until 1930. So Lovecraft didn't write about him in supernatural horror and literature. That essay predates their relationship. We knew we would get to these eventually, since Lovecraft and Howard, they shared creations all the time. I remember reading this story when I was younger and thinking somehow it, it was a Lovecraft story. It's definitely an imitation of Lovecraft, but I still think those differences in their aesthetic come through. This month, we're going to cover the Blackstone, mm -hmm. the Children of the Night. They're calling, they're calling. <laughs> Worms of the Earth and Pigeons from Hell, all of which have been recommended to us over time. And I'm yep. reading these in this collection called The Horror Stories of Robert E. Howard. It's from Ballantine Books. In the introduction to this book that I'm reading by Rusty Burke, I thought he worded this perfectly, the difference between aesthetics. Though a great admirer of the cosmic horror of Lovecraft and the imaginative sweep of Clark Ashton Smith, Howard was by nature an adventure writer, and his concerns were human, not cosmic. And this is something that Howard wrote in a letter to Lovecraft, he wrote. It is the individual mainly which draws me, the struggling, blundering, passionate insect vainly striving against the river of life and seeking to divert the channel of events to suit himself, breaking his fangs on the iron collar of fate and sinking into final defeat with a froth of a curse on his lips. Very much so about the doomed lives we all share. <laughs> you right, know, yeah. that's what he's primarily interested in. But as it relates to us as individuals and less so in a cosmic sense. Yeah. And, and we saw that when we covered the challenge from beyond at our live show in Leeds. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, he immediately made everybody men of action. And, and that's really what he's about. Yeah. We'll do more bio as the month goes on, obviously. There's a ton of interesting stuff about Howard, and he did oh my meet, gosh, yeah. meet a tragic end. But um, what what are the basics of his bio? Well, he, he was born in 1906, so he was a lot younger than Lovecraft in Texas and spent most of his life there. He started writing at an early age, and his mother was very encouraging to him. She taught him a love of poetry and po uh, pose. <laughs> she taught him how to pose? A love of poetry and prose. His mother and father didn't get along very well. Uh, so there was kind of a tumultuous family life, but they still stayed together. Which kind of, I don't know if that kind of messes some kids up a little bit. Uh, so he had a rough childhood in a way. Like there was, his mother was kind of doting on him and his father was a little distant. And, and said, when it, he first got published when he was 18 years old, which is pretty amazing in Weird Tales magazine. It was a caveman story called Spear and Fang. Uh, he quit his stenography school because that's what he was doing. He was going to school when he got that job and he wanted to become a full-time writer. So he started writing. Uh, and this started kind of a trend in his life where he would <laughs> get a job, quit it because he was making some money writing and then not be making any money writing and then have to get a job again. And then he yeah. quit. You know, it's just kind of back and forth for a while. Yeah, he ping pong like that, which is... We need to get into the story, but there was another little anecdote about this from that intro by Rusty Burke that relates to what you're saying. I'll just do this one and then we can... Okay, sure, sure. We'll save bio for the other episodes. But uh, Howard wrote this werewolf story called Wolf's Head, one of his first horror stories. Mm -hmm. He didn't like it that much, but Farnsworth Wright dug it, and so he was going to make it the cover story for the April 26 Weird Tales issue. Mm -hmm. Now, the artist who did the cover art, he didn't return the manuscript, so Farnsworth 
reached out to Howard and said, do you happen to have a carbon copy? Which Howard did not have. Mm -hmm. He didn't make them at the time. So he said, no worries. He rewrote it from memory. Wow. He just sat down and, and tapped it out, sent that in, which gave him an extra 10 bucks for the effort over the 40 that he had earned on the story, which was really cool. So he was pretty happy about that. They actually found the original manuscript and combined it with the last page of his newly written one uh -huh. and then published it. And when he read it, he was really disappointed in it. In a letter, he said, I got the advanced pages of Wolf's Head, which was about to be published. Reading it over, I was so depressed and discouraged that I went and got a job jerking soda in a drugstore. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, I, I understand the monetary aspect, but it also seems as if he's doing it almost to like drown his sorrows. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, I was so lonely and depressed last night. I just went out and I got three jobs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, I think they shouldn't was... have been serving me, honestly. What was Jim Barry doing hiring at 3 a.m.? <laughs> yeah. I got a problem. So did you see that biopic about Robert E. Howard, The Whole Wide World, with uh, D'Onofrio and Renee Zellweger? I didn't see it, no. I remember seeing the trailer for it and D'Onofrio just in a cornfield screaming or something. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't remember well, what. It's based on a memoir that this school teacher who knew him and sort of dated him for a bit wrote. So okay. it's... It came out in 96. Lovecraft has got a shout out in it, literally, because he shouts that he got a letter from H.P. Lovecraft. Like He goes, <laughs> I got a letter from H.P. Lovecraft. He's really stoked about it. And and that's it. That's all there is. But I, you know, I got excited when it was yeah. mentioned there. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting movie. Paints him out to be a total nut job, like really crazy, which he probably was. However, the movie is based on one person's account. And this person didn't really know him very well. Yeah. In my opinion, I don't know. From his letters, he's so well-spoken and thoughtful and articulate. I'm sure as a person, he was somewhat nuts, but uh, I yeah. wouldn't want that to be introduced as his primary characteristic, you know? I mean, he gave us so much good literature. Yeah, yeah. As we heard in the intro reading, there's this German guy, von Juntz, and he wrote this creepy book in 1839 called Nameless Cults. <laughs> it's been uh, translated a number of times over the years, but the narrator has an early, unedited German copy. And Nameless Cults, this was a creation by Howard. Uh, it was his Necronomicon. He, he really appreciated what Lovecraft was doing and wanted to try his hand at it. And Lovecraft liked it, actually. I was looking on hplovecraft.com, uh, Donovan Lauk's site, and yes. on there it said the next year after Howard had introduced Nameless Cults, mm -hmm. Lovecraft thought we should have a German title for this. The title Lovecraft came up with was Ungenente Heidenthum, which correspondence didn't really think made much sense. Uh -huh. um, and then August Derleth came up with an Osprechlichen cult. So how we know it, that's actually Derleth's translation of Howard's original creation. The correct translation would probably be Die Unaussprechlichen Kulten or Unaussprechliche Kulten would probably be more correct because mm. Unaussprechlichen Kulten more literally means unpronounceable cults. So that would mean not having a name. Right, yeah. As opposed to having a name, but you can't pronounce it. Yeah. Which Either works creepier. great. Yeah, that's even creepier. I think so. I'm glad they stuck with Hunas Spreckle and Kulten. So uh, Von Jutz lived from 1795 to 1840 and was always into the forbidden or the supernatural stuff. He knew a lot about secret societies and cults and esoteric books. He was part of those circles, so mm -hmm. he knew a lot about them, made a lot of friends, but also a lot of enemies. It was amazing what he put in this book because there was a lot of stuff that was supposed to be secret, so people think maybe some of these cults got angry with him. When he was working on his next book, Book, his follow-up book, he died mysteriously, or, or was murdered, I should say. He was found in a room that was bolted from the inside with marks on his neck from taloned fingers around mm. his throat. And then his friend, Alexis Ladue, found those notes that he was writing and was going to put it together. And then he just burned the notes and then slashed his own throat. 
man. So it's just like Alazif in the Necronomicon. Yes. The yeah. author comes to a bad end. One thing talked about in Nameless Cults is a monolith called the Black Stone. And mm-hmm. a monolith, as I learned from you a long time ago, is a big upright stone block. And this black stone, it's off in the mountains of Hungary. It was the focus of some cult that is now lost to the ages, but the stone itself still stands. And supposedly people see strange things if they're around this Right. Black stone. So our narrator f- finds a few more references to this black stone in other books, but some of the information is contradictory or just lacking. One bit that he finds is that supposedly if people sleep by the stone on midsummer's night, they will have horrible visions and be driven insane. And the dreams that they have, they'll never lose. They'll, they'll yeah. stick with them forever. The black stone, he knows that it's in this village called Strigoykovar, which means something like witch town Mm -hmm. but he can't he doesn't know where it is Mm. specifically it's not on maps but we heard that little poem at the beginning right the author being justin jeffrey that's kind of robert e howard's pickman you know the mad artist right he wrote a poem called the people of the monolith and probably those lines we read were from that Mm -hmm. and and he did some digging and found out that Jeffrey wrote this poem while in Hungary. That must be the black stone that he's talking mm-hmm. about in the poem. So if he can track where Jeffrey went, he can find the city of Strigoykovar. That's the, the connection, which he does. So he locates yeah. the town. He says, great. And then he says, you know, I was, I was casting about to figure out where I should go on vacation. <laughs> I guess I'll go to go here, which is crazy. You know, we get very few details about the narrator. He is that prototypical unnamed narrator. Nope. I don't know if he's a teacher or. A... Yeah. No, we don't know anything about this guy. But apparently he's got some vacation time. Yeah, he sure does. And so his journey is uneventful. Uh, he goes by this castle, ruins, that are really creepy. And there's a story about the castle that the, I think it's the coach driver tells him. Yeah, because they pass by an old battlefield. And that's where Count Boris Vladinov fought the invading Suleiman the Magnificent in 1526. These were Great like, name. Yeah, it really is. Local stories, <laughs> they say that that Vladinov took shelter in this ruined castle while he was trying to repel Suleiman, who was a, a Mus- that's like a Muslim Turkish force, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was brought this lacquered case that had been found near the body of Selim Bahadur, who was one of the enemy's historians. He was a Turkish scribe. This uh, Selim Bahadur had died in a recent battle, and he'd been up near the Black Stone when the Turks were coming through there. In that box, there was an account that this historian had written about those hills. We don't know that, but when the count reads that, it scares him so much. But he never gets to comment it because the Turkish artillery hits the castle he's in and it collapses. Yeah. Collapses, <laughs> killing him. So there's this ruined castle and under it are the bones of this count. Okay? So that comes into play later on. So hopefully that made sense. So he gets to Strigoykovar and settles at the inn. The owner says, oh, you know, we had Americans stay here about 10 years ago. A young fellow, queer acting, mumbled to himself, a poet, I think. And he's like, oh, that was Justin Jeffrey. So confirmed his theories were right. This is the place where the monolith is. So the innkeeper says uh, that he was a strange guy. He must have been a great poet because, you know, good artists are always really crazy. And the narrator says, well, uh, yeah, he was pretty crazy because he died in a madhouse about five years ago. And the innkeeper says, oh, I guess he looked at the black stone too long. And then he's like, what? Yeah, that's my inn. That's it. And he goes, so, uh, you know, that black stone still around, around here? Where's that at? I've heard stories about that black stone. He kind of shrugs and points out the window and says, it's right, you know, up that way up the mountain near this cliff. The innkeeper says, I wish it were in the Danube because so many men have tried to destroy it, but nobody has. So people just shun it. Right. And not only are they unable to destroy it, but if they try to, each man who laid hammer or maul against it came to an evil end. So it might not even happen right then. The innkeeper, he also relates the story. There was a young guy who was laughing about the myths with the Blackstone. He went up and he slept by it on Midsummer Night. Mm -hmm. 
and he came back the next morning completely insane. It says something had shattered his brain and sealed his lips, for until the day of his death, which came soon after, he spoke only to utter terrible blasphemies or to slaver gibberish. <laughs> Good Lovecraftian stuff. And yeah, yeah. this, uh, the innkeeper's nephew also, as a boy, had gotten lost out there yeah. and slept near the stone. Luckily, it wasn't Midsummer Night, so he didn't go insane, but he has never stopped having nightmares about it. The innkeeper goes on to talk about how people of the region are not descendants from the people that were there originally. They're from the lower valley, mm-hmm. and they're not Turks either. The Turks came in, killed everybody that was living there, and then they, they beat it. Right. And when they came in, they killed everybody. They killed men, women, children. All of them. They just yes. were like, something's wrong about this. And according to folklore, the valley people, not the mountain people, mm. you know, but the mountain people would raid the valley people and steal women and children. Right. And, and they were pagans and had some kind of weird genetic offshoot. You know, they looked different than everybody else. And they were interbreeding with the valley people. So they started kind of looking more like the valley people over the years. Now, this is all like ancient history. So this is just the legends that this guy's hearing. Which all shows Howard's interest, not just in Lovecraft, but in Arthur Mackin, because right. it drew a lot of influence from the little people of the Arthur Mackin kind of ancient, squat, sinister race. Thing. Yeah. So the next morning, he stays there in the night. The next morning, he gets specific directions to go off to the stone. He takes him a few hours. Nobody lives up there. It's totally far from civilization, no farms or anything like that. He climbs higher and higher through some thick brush that opens up into a glade, and there it stands, the Blackstone. Going into it, for some reason, I thought of the monolith, you know, in 2001, or Mm -hmm. maybe like Stonehenge, like that kind of thing. But it's not at all what I thought it was. It's 16 feet tall, but it's only a foot and a half thick, and it's octagonal in shape. So it kind of looks more like a telephone pole than what I would picture a monolith to look like. Mm. So it's sort of alien. Uh, The surface was once polished, but it's been chipped and scratched over the years. And there's some crazy hieroglyphics that don't seem to be like anything he's seen before. Well, the closest he's seen is something in South American uh, Indian in the Yucatan, Mm -hmm. which was also on a stone very similar to this. So there might be a connection to something a world away, which is also odd. And also the characters 10 feet from the base are all completely blotted out. They've been scratched out or, or marked. And the ones that he could really make up are the ones that are higher up, which... Obviously, people couldn't reach to, you know, to blot out. So he stays there for a while, checking the thing out. Then he leaves, goes back to town, totally bewildered. And he asks him, you know, your nephew, is he still around? I want to talk to him about this. The innkeeper's nephew who has the, who's still having the dreams, right? Right. He he talks to him, but the visions are vague and there's only one real distinct image. He says the black stone is not on a mountain slope in his dreams, but it's set like a spire on a colossal black castle. Right. It's not just a monolith they erected to worship at. It's a fragment of a larger thing below. Right. So he asks other people about the town. Nobody wants to talk to it except for the schoolmaster. He says the schoolmaster is a man of surprising education who'd been out in the world. So he has more curiosity about the history of things than perhaps the locals do. Mm-hmm. He says the original members he thought were members of a fertility cult. And the original name of the town was, it's a crazy alien looking name. I'm going to say Zuthultan. Sure. And he also states that he thinks the people that were there in that fertility cult, they didn't erect the monolith. It's older than that. Right. Far older. They just focused their rituals around it. Mm-hmm. But the schoolmaster says, hey, all of that stuff was a long time ago. I'm not afraid of it. I mean, I'd go up there and sleep. So after his talk with the schoolmaster, on his way back to the inn, it dawns on him that it's Midsummer Night. Like, <laughs> that was not? so funny to me. What You wouldn't know? I mean, he planned yeah, no. his vacation. It's ridiculous that he wouldn't At, know. He didn't even need to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would, I would have assumed that the yeah. character knew it was going to be Midsummer Night. So it was funny when he's like, oh, my gosh. What are the odds? So he goes onto the streets, dead quiet. Nobody's about. He goes up to the site. No people. Again, he saw nobody on his journey. Looking up the cliffs in the moonlight, he thinks 
that the cliffs don't look quite natural. They look more like maybe a castle. Mm. And then he goes, ah, that's a trick of the mind. Can't be a castle. That wouldn't make any sense. He gets out to the glade. He sees the monolith in the moonlight. It's almost midnight. He can hear an uncanny suggestion of faint, unseen pipes whispering an eerie and evil tune. Yeah. And then he falls asleep. Yep. Which I know it was probably the spell of the place. Right. I mean, it's kind of suggested that that's what it is that makes him fall asleep there. But still, you know, it's like, what's with these guys in these stories going to creepy places and then taking naps? You know what I mean? It just seems to happen over and over and over again. Or just sleeping on the ground with no blanket or tent or anything like that. I'm just going to walk out there and just lay down and go to sleep. (laughs) It just seems like it keeps happening in stories we read, you know, even in Dracula. You know, Dracula told me not to go into that room over there. Maybe I'll go (laughs) in and take a little nap. (laughs) At least that's indoors for crying out loud. That's true, yeah. I I've also think it is some supernatural force that makes him fall asleep. He doesn't just decide to go to sleep there. I think so, too. Whatever that is, it knocks him out and he opens his eyes in the sleep state and he can't move because clearly now he's in a dream of some kind. Mm-hmm. And he sees suddenly a ton of people in barbaric costumes, very squat and degraded looking, and they're around the monolith chanting. But he hears them as if they're across, it says, vast leagues of space or time. <laughs> <laughs> clearly... Our narrator is seeing a ritual that happened a long time ago. That's why it's taking. That's why the sound seems distant, even though they're all around him. Yeah. It says below the monolith stood a sort of brazier, which I think is like a grill. Right. You know, isn't it kind of like? Yeah, a, yeah. No, it's like a it's like a big upside down shield. Yeah. On a stand, and they put hot coals in there. There's there are a, sacrifices on there. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, there's two figures. Uh, it's a young girl, totally naked, bound hand and foot, and a baby. Apparently, a few months old. If any of our listeners are squeamish, you might want to zip ahead about five minutes of the show here. Some pretty ghastly things are described in this story. The child gets hurt. So yeah, if that really bothers you, you might not want to keep listening. Across from the brazier, there's this hideous old hag with a queer sort of black drum on her lap that mm-hmm. she's beating. You can't hear the sound of it, but she's looking at the sacrifices and she's beating this drum. And then the show starts, basically. Yeah, this uh, naked woman, young woman, she jumps out. Her eyes are totally crazy and her hair is flowing and she's just kind of doing a crazy dance. And then right after her, a man comes out. He's got a goat skin on his waist. Says his features are entirely hidden by a sort of mask made from a huge wolf's head so that he looked like a monstrous nightmare being. Mm. And he's got a a whip and she's dancing and he's dancing with her and he's whipping her (laughs) while they're doing this. And it, it says at every blow, he shouted a single word over and over and the people shouted it back. There's some clubs in LA that kind of have this stuff going on. <laughs> I've heard. You've I've heard. heard. Sure, Chris. I've been to them. No. Uh, what? We've <laughs> uh, been researching the story. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, five years ago. So the. Uh, um, <laughs> No, I think it's cool how Howard does hold some details back. You can't hear the drums. You don't know what word it is that they're shouting. But on the other hand, if Lovecraft introduces a ritual, he barely tells you what's going on, other to say that it's unnameable and indescribable. Yeah. Not so with Howard, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. We're going to have a cult ritual. I'm going to tell you what's up. Yeah. This woman keeps dancing, dancing. She gets crazier and crazier. Until she falls to the ground, the man just keeps beating her with that lash. She crawls toward the monolith on her belly and starts kissing it. Yeah. The fantastic priest bounded high in the air, flinging away the red-dabbed switches, and the worshippers, howling and foaming at the mouths, turned on each other with tooth and nail, rending one another's garments and flesh in a blind passion of bestiality. 
The priest swept up the infant with a long arm and shouting again that name, whirled the wailing babe high in the air and dashed its brains against the monolith, leaving a ghastly stain on the black surface. Cold with horror, I saw him rip the tiny body open with his bare, brutish fingers and fling handfuls of blood on the shaft, then toss the red and torn shape into the brazier, extinguishing flame and smoke in a crimson rain, while the maddened brutes behind him howled over and over the name. Then suddenly they all fell prostrate, writhing like snakes, while the priest flung wide his gory hands as in triumph. I opened my mouth to scream my horror and loathing, but only a dry rattle sounded. A huge, monstrous, toad-like thing squatted on the top of the monolith. I saw its bloated, repulsive, and unstable outline against the moonlight and set in what would have been the face of a natural creature, its huge, blinking eyes, which reflected all the lust, abysmal greed, obscene cruelty, and monstrous evil that has stalked the sons of men since their ancestors moved blind and hairless in the treetops. In those grisly eyes were mirrored all the unholy things and vile secrets that sleep in the cities under the sea and that skulk from the light of day in the blackness of primordial caverns. And so that ghastly thing, that the unhallowed ritual of cruelty and sadism and blood had evoked from the silence of the hills, leered and blinked down on its bestial worshippers, who groveled in abhorrent abasement before it. Yeah, that's, uh, that is pretty heinous one of the more graphic things that perhaps the most graphic thing but we've read yeah disturbing did you i didn't expect that no god no but it really drives home how terrible these people are right and um our narrator sees all of this and then he witnesses the priest holding the girl's body up to the monster and then he faints and then he faints or you know he you know he goes back into the dream or whatever it is that's going on yeah right right because he wakes up in the morning and realizes it's all a dream. It's all a dream, thank goodness. But he also remembers that earlier story that we had touched on about the count who collapsed under the castle. Right. And how he, he had had this box with some information in it, perhaps about the mountains where the Black Stone is. Let, we can get through the rest of the story pretty quickly here. He basically goes and excavates that castle and finds the box, which was an account of the mountains and what really went down when the Turks swept through. Basically, they found this toad monster, the right. worshippers and everything. He says they also found in a nearby cave a monstrous, bloating, wallowing, toad-like being and slew it with flame and ancient steel blessed in old times by Muhammad and with incantations that were old when Arabia was young. They just went in there and took it out. Yeah. That would never happen in a Lovecraft story. So it's not really a god. It's more of a creature. Yeah. You know, if it can be killed by man, I wouldn't say that that's any kind of god. You know, that this creature is often in in kind of the Cthulhu mythos. It's implied that it's uh, Sathagwa. This whole mythology continues to be developed after Howard introduces it in these couple of stories. So, right. Sothagawa is a creation of Clark Ashton Smith. 
Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So they've been conflated or did... Yeah, I'm not sure if, if which story came first, with whether it was Clark Ash and Smith's story. Well, that's a little trivia for our audience. Oh, yeah. Do our work for us and Do let us know. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll tell everybody on our next episode. Yeah, right. I, w- I wonder if Clark Ash and Smith read this and thought, oh, I like that toad being and threw a name on it. Or if it's just something that people have done. Because this is a thing about uh, that we should clarify. Lovecraft, again, wasn't really trying to create a mythos. No. It was a lot more like in-jokes. Yeah. Let's share some stuff and then it's kind of fun because we're creating these fake things that aren't real. But they didn't care about rules or characters to be or consistency. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Or consistency. So when Howard asked Lovecraft, he first wrote to him and said, what is this? Did I miss this? Like, (laughs) I research a lot of things. Howard's very intelligent, read a lot of history. He didn't know anything about the Cthulhu's or the Necronomicons. Yeah. And Lovecraft said, no, no, that's Yogg-Sothery. That's a joke me and my buddies do. And by all means, use it. So when Howard's bringing this stuff in, it has a lot more to do with that than any kind of consistent mythos they were all collaborating on. Exactly. Anyhow, the narrator realizes that this dream that he had when he was up there was actually a vision of this real event, this real ritual that had happened. Mm -hmm. And also that the Black Stone is a spire of this massive castle, which we already knew. And that the cliffs, the reason that he had that vision earlier that they were battlements was because they are. And the the rest of the castle is under the Hungarian mountains. His decision is that nobody else needs to know this. So he takes that scroll and the box and he throws it all into the river and then ends the story with suggestions that there are far worse things. That horror has faded into the limbo from which it crawled loathsomely in the black dawn of the earth. But what of the other fiendish possibilities hinted at by von Juntz? What of the monstrous hand which strangled out his life? Since reading what Selim Bahadur wrote, I can no longer doubt anything in the black book. Man was not always master of the earth, and is he now? And the thought recurs to me, If such a monstrous entity as the master of the monolith somehow survived its own unspeakably distant epoch so long, what nameless shapes may even now lurk in the dark places of the world? That's the end of the story. That's the end. It's a good one. Yeah, it was. Great stuff. I've loved Howard for a long time, so I'm glad that we're finally... We're touching on this stuff on the show. I'm looking forward to checking these stories out because I've never read... Well, I've read this one before, but I read it mm-hmm. so long ago. Like I said, I didn't even remember that it was Robert E. Howard. I thought it was a Lovecraft story. When I started reading, I'm like, oh, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I've, I've read this before. I haven't read any of these stories, so yeah. this, this is going to be great. I want to thank our sponsor, the horror anthology High Strange Horror. From Muzzleland Press. Remember to go pick it up at Amazon. We will link out from our show notes. Fantastic collection of 17 different stories that are concerned with good and bad conspiracy theories all through a, a lens of horror. So our listeners will definitely like it. Also want to thank our reader for this week, Caleb Hoffert. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much. I should also mention that the music we used for this episode is from my album Sense Impacts, which you can get at chaosium.com. I believe it's 30% off right now, so go check that out. And with that, I want to say good evening or good day, depending on when you're listening to the show. <laughs> and I hope that you've enjoyed the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com. That was a really good outro, Chris. Thank you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> All right, good. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!